Welcome to the TSO Podcast. I'm Kathleen Kajioka from the New Classical FM. What I love about this kind of music is that really they're going to be, I think, taken in by the drama of what's happening. That's countertenor Daniel Taylor. You'll hear more from him later in the show. Our first guest is TSO principal trumpet Andrew McCandless. Since his first professional position at age 20 with the Savannah Symphony, McCandless has held positions of principal trumpet with the Buffalo Philharmonic and the Dallas Symphony. He was appointed TSO principal trumpet in 1999 and is on the faculty of the Royal Conservatory of Music. My co-host, TSO principal bass Jeff Beecher, went backstage to talk with Andrew about life as an orchestral musician in 2017. Take a listen. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to be here. So, Andrew, over the past couple years, we've had some conversations about the perceptions our friends and family who are non-musicians might have of our jobs here in the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and they may not always get it. Is that that right in terms of what we do? (laughs) Certainly my family (laughs) isn't sure what I do. So, yeah, I, I think that's right, yeah. What's also interesting, and we've been talking a lot about this lately, is how even our own perceptions of our job descriptions, you know, when we sign a contract for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, it says principal trumpet for you, but there's no job description. Is that also right? Yeah, that's right. I think we, we you know, when we're young and in university or wherever we come from, we uh, get a job in an orchestra and we assume that what we're going to be doing is playing the music and being on stage and spending time at home practicing and making sure that we're prepared and that we sound good and that that's the most important part of the job. And in fact, that's still true. I do think that's the most important the job, part of the job. What I found uh, in the last several years is that, that really, at some point, we have to find a way for that not to be the only part of the job. We have to find a way to be more visible in the community and not just from a marketing campaign standpoint, but as musicians reaching out to our audience and to our donors and to even government officials to make sure that they know you know, what we do, why we do it, and why is it important to the community. So cultural citizens, really, engaging the community. What do you feel like are, are ways that you're passing that on, too? Because as a teacher, that's such an important part. Of course, you're teaching how to play the trumpet at, at the highest of levels in musicianship, but is this, are there skill sets that you're developing that you're passing on as well within these, this realm? Yeah, I try to. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, this year I made a small donation to the Glenn Gould School where we both teach. And um, within a couple of weeks, a student who was part of this scholarship program called my home to thank me for the donation. And it was a very small amount in the grand scheme of things, but, but fairly remarkable that the person who's actually affected by my gift is the one who's reaching out to say thank you. And so I do, I talk to my students often about... Um, making sure they're able to speak publicly. So when they play a recital, they're required to speak, or speaking in in our trumpet class, they have to have times where they speak to each other so that they're practicing those skills on how to communicate with an audience. But interesting that that the school is actually, I think, could be teaching us something as professional musicians about how can we reach out to our audience, to our donors, to say thanks, to connect with them in a way that is is really tangible for them because so often we're seen as a people in a fancy outfit on a stage playing music that most of them feel they can't if they clap between movements they'll get in trouble so we're, we're set up for this very austere environment and then we have to find a way i believe if we want to continue to move forward we have to find a way to reach through that so i notice a lot at intermissions at our concerts you're leaving the stage going even from backstage into the hall and and it seems like you're speaking to people 
pretty frequently. What's that about for you? Um, well, those are just people that I've met over the years. They're, they're donors, board members, um, and I do. I go out not every week, but most weeks, at least one of the concerts, I go out to say hi to people and talk to them. Um, make sure that, you know, do they like the concert? Do they like the music? Are they happy? Is there anything we could do for them? Uh, I just try to make sure that they know that as, as a musician, I understand that what they do for us is vital and that they need to understand that I know that. So there's an incredible proactivity that you have, really. It's not just coming and being prepared, of course, with the music, but doing so much that may not always be clear to people perceiving what the Toronto Symphony is about. Well, I, yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, to, to me, it makes sense. They go hand in hand. We're in a, in a business where our revenue cannot cover our expense. And we all know that. We have ticket sales, and we have uh, income from the interest on the endowment, and we have government money, all of which is super important. But the fourth part of that is the only part that's the most variable. Right? What we what we get in philanthropic gifts is makes up the balance. And as a musician, if I want to continue to play this great music, if I want to continue to send my you know send my kids to college, pay for my house, whatever it is I want to do, I have to connect with those people. I have to. But what's so interesting about it to me is that I have made incredible friends. Just incredible friends. These are what we, you know, it's so easy for both sides. One of the things that we forget is that when I meet with a donor, I forget so easily that they're so impressed with what I do. And what they would like more than anything else is to not do what they do and do what I do, which is weird because what I want to do is do what they do so that I have the money to donate to institutions too. That would be great for me. So it's, you know, I think that it's, it needs to be incumbent upon us to reach out to our supporters and to our audience and tell them how grateful we are for what they do to allow us to perform. Well, I couldn't agree more. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. That was TSO Principal Trumpet Andrew McCandless. Catch him on stage with the TSO before the season ends. You're listening to the TSO Podcast. Stay with us. Our next guest is Canadian countertenor Daniel Taylor. He's appeared in over a hundred recordings and major opera houses and venues across North America and Europe. Daniel appears with the TSO in four performances of Orff's Carmina Burana this week. He joins us on the line now. Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much, Kathleen. So you're a countertenor. Let's start with that first because a lot of listeners probably don't know what that is. Can you tell us? Well, um, the short answer is that a countertenor sings in the same register as um, as a female contralto or mezzo-soprano, and sometimes a very high tenor as well. And so I've, I've covered everything from medieval music, and then, of course, Bach and Handel. The voice type was very popular. And then also medieval music, um, anything from John Taverner, uh, to Arvo Pert, and maybe uh, composers of today like Thomas Addis, and one of my favorites, George Benjamin. So the piece that you're going to be performing with the TSO is kind of goes across time because it involves Renaissance music, but it's written in the 20th century by Karl Orff. Can you tell us more about singing in this work? Yes, I remember my first invitation was actually from Yannick Nézé-Séguin, and he was in Montreal, and he was really just um, beginning to flourish as a conductor. 
and I had a call to do this piece. And of course, I was aware of the piece, but I didn't know what role I could have in it. So, you know, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with the story, but the text actually dates from, yeah, from medieval times for 11th, 12th, 13th century. But there, it also runs a parallel to sacred story. At this point, we have a meal when I arrive on stage. And I am the meal. I'm actually a roasting <laughs> swan. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so I do, I describe the life of a swan that's about to be eaten. And it's actually very exciting to do. The last time I sang it, I think, was with Russell Braun, um, who was amazing. I mean, he was just incredible. I sing for about two minutes and 40 seconds. <laughs> so it really, it's great. It's a cameo. And this time around, it's Philip Addis, who's, again, just a wonderful singer. I get to really be on stage and watch what's happening. Yeah, so having done that and been able to take in the piece so many times and in such an intimate way, what would you guide our listeners to in terms of listening to that piece? Gosh, I mean, there are so many highlights to the piece, really. In terms of the style of the music itself, I think there's a certain uh, access that the audience will have to it immediately. It has a theatrical quality. And I think it also brings us closer to speech than some music might. And we also have these melodies that come again and again, pneumatic melodies. So these are melodies that are going to feel as if they're more modal and draw the audience's ear again and again. I mean, what I love about this kind of music is that really they're going to be, I think, taken in by the drama of what's happening. There's a certain ease to listening to it. It's also rhythmically, there's a terrific amount of um, percussion and built-in rhythm um, into the language of the piece. So even though it's quite complex at times, it immediately appeals to the listener. There's something very immediate and maybe less cerebral about it. Kind of visceral. Yes. Very physical. Yes. You have, uh, I'm sure, a busy summer coming up. I do. What's ahead for you? (laughs) After the TSO, I'm going to go to Amalfi, to the Amalfi Coast, mm. where it's an unusual assignment for me. I'm going to coach Puccini. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's uh, going to be my first time. I'll be around uh, in Canada. I'm singing at the Stratford Festival. I'm singing at the Alora Festival. But then I head back to Italy again. I also teach in Siena. It's a pretty exciting summer because it's balanced between teaching and then performing. Well, well, we wish you all the best for the summer and look forward to hearing you with the TSO. I can hardly wait. Thanks for joining us. That was Canadian countertenor Daniel Taylor. See him center stage with the TSO at Carmina Burana this week. Tickets are available at tso.ca. That brings us to the end of this week's TSO podcast. Don't forget, let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to community at tso.ca or leave a note on our Facebook or Twitter pages. For more music and stories from the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, join us on Sunday night with the TSO. That's every Sunday at 8 p.m. on the new Classical FM. I'm Kathleen Kajioka. Join us next Monday for another episode of the TSO podcast. This June, escape into music with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Feel the power and passion of Carmina Burana. The soul-shaking choral spectacular you must experience live. Plus, the radiant virtuosa Nicola Benedetti in a soaring performance of Shimonovsky's Second Violin Concerto. Don't miss Carmina Burana, June 21st to 24th at Roy Thompson Hall. Final tickets are on sale now. Book yours today at tso.ca.